Yeah. So now let's we're back in the Philippines. The first body just gets dropped off. You obviously decide that you're going to get stronger. You don't want it to happen again. How do you like? Are you just really good at recentering yourself emotionally, or have you? Are is it a meditative practice? Like when the body hits, <laughs> I I know what that would be like for me. That rush of blood to my head, where my ears almost feel like they're closing in. You can hear your heartbeat beating in your ears. Um, how did you, did that happen and you had to calm yourself down or does that just not happen and, and you're just so laser focused? Well, it was principally because we were still in the midst of the siege. There were still two, <clears throat> still two Americans whose lives were at stake. And up to that point in time, the, intergovern the intergovernmental organization was probably at its worst. Like we had previously gotten through a case and everybody had gotten away with kind of half cooperating and the bodies hadn't been, the case we just finished uh, just a couple of months earlier, like nobody got killed. Mm. And it's a little bit like, like success. You went, you know, a football analogy again, it's tough for a football team to repeat after they won the Super Bowl because people are a little more focused on their own success versus team success once they reach the pinnacle. So the cooperation in the early part of the second case was horrible. I mean horrible because they'd gotten away with it previously and there was no body count. But now there was, there was people were dying. So we really had to, we got arms more around the case. We pushed a little harder on cooperation. People got a little more serious about not cooperating, which in the long run, 12 months later, was when the final round, uh, two out of three remaining Americans got killed in a botched rescue attempt. And the, the case had gotten really ugly again at that point. Now, that one hit me harder than the first one because in the first one, nobody had been cooperating with us. So I felt less responsible for the outcome because the government of the Philippines was playing games with us. You know, they, they, they felt out of control on the last case. So they gave us a guy who was supposed to handle the negotiations that was just completely going missing in action on a regular basis when he was supposed to be with us. I mean, he and, and they pulled him right after the first series of deaths. They were like, all right, this ain't working out so good. So I felt, you know, we still had the case going and I hadn't got my arms wrapped around it that well. Now, 12 months later, I had had my arms wrapped around it, and then when Martin Burnham, when the word came in that he got killed, that that hit me. That was a, that was a real. I'll never forget that moment. I was I was at home in the U.S. when I when I got the call that he'd been killed. That for me at the time was difficult. Uh, worst moment of my professional career. One of my worst personal moments until I'm listening to a case a couple years later listening to a negotiator talk about how hard it was on him when a baby had gotten killed in a siege. Oh, God. And I remember thinking at the time, and it was a guy I had a tremendous amount of respect for. I thought, hard on you? That wasn't your relative. And then when I thought about that, I thought, and how am I, you know, feeling sorry for myself over Martin Burnham's death because he wasn't my father? He wasn't, you know, my spouse. He wasn't my brother. You know, I, I got no right feeling bad about this. 
or at least to the extent that his family members do. So that, you know, that was a bit of, you know, the overall journey that putting things in perspective. Like you asked to be in the middle of this stuff. It's a volunteer job. You're going to feel sorry for yourself when you volunteered. That's probably out of perspective. Why did you volunteer? You know, I, I found myself, I was in crisis response. I was a member of the FBI SWAT team, and I had re-injured my knee, and I wanted to stay in crisis response. I liked crisis response. People got to make up their mind. You know, you can't go, well, let's sleep on this. You know, let's give us 24 hours to think about it. You know, you can't do that. You, get, you know, you got to make a decision. And I've always been in favor of decision making. So... I'd been a SWAT guy, and we had hostage negotiators, and it was a little bit like what we were talking about earlier. You know, some stuff is a lot harder than it looks from the outside. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I literally remember thinking to myself, I talk to people every day. I could talk to terrorists. How hard could it be? You know, my son and I joked that a Voss family motto is "How hard could it be," <laughs> which is a little bit like you know, it's a little bit like the rednecks' famous last words: "Hey, watch this." Yeah. Hold my beer. <laughs> Hold my beer. So, uh, but then I got into it and I've been volunteering. When I finally got trained, I got volunteered on a suicide hotline. And then when I'm in it, I'm like, I'm around these extraordinary people that are doing phenomenal things with words. I mean, with words, not actual actions, just words, making a huge difference and being in the middle of these sieges and making a difference simply by what they said. And I thought, now nah, I, you know, I could get into this. This, this, this could be good, and it was. And so, how does that journey begin of learning what to say? Like, what are they? What are the sort of magic words? Like, take us back to the Philippines. The bodies start coming out. How do you talk somebody down like that? Like it, it just seems like all hope is lost once they kill the first person. There's no backing out. Yeah, man. They still got more people that are at stake. And so you, you, you can't not communicate. And, you know, it's kind of like any other negotiation where the other side is doing stuff that is just not in their interest, but they're absolutely convinced that they're right. I mean, these guys want to get paid. And negotiation is not what it is to you. It's what it is to the other side. You get all bent out of shape that it's a horrific, horrible thing. That was something I heard you say, I think in – in an interview, yeah. So there is no such thing as logical. There's right. only what matters to you. Yeah. And I was like, oh side. my god, that is so true. You literally just cut through decades worth of economics textbooks <laughs> that try to make people seem rational with that yeah. one sentence. It, that that the second I heard you say that, I was like, oh my god, that is absolutely true. There is no such thing as logical. There's only what matters to you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So is that like when you come into a situation like that? Are you just asking yourself what matters to this person yeah you is know, that is that the most fundamental bigger, question what matters then what matters and and then ultimately people make up their mind principally on what they perceive the loss to be um and that's that's human nature doesn't matter the scenario when you say the loss the loss that led them to do this or what losing in that scenario would look like Got to look at both. Loss that drove them to the table in the first place to take the action. And then what loss are they avoiding by the action? 
and you want to get in their head and find out what it is. And since what loss are they avoiding is all perception, you know, vision of the future, then depending upon how you got in their head, if you're in there by invitation, which is the whole point of empathy or the tactical application of empathy, to get in by invitation. Since you're in there by invitation, then the idea is to get them to look at another loss. So if it's a kidnapping, it's a question that is, is, seems as um, merciless as how are you going to get paid if you kill people? How, how are we going to collaborate? You know, how much are you losing by getting rid of hostages when you could have gotten paid for them? Because somebody's going to scare up the money for the hostage. Right. Somebody's going to. A hostage negotiator's real job internationally is to make sure that if somebody scares up that money, that there's enough of a trail left that you can hunt them down afterwards. It's exactly why you give a bank teller bait money. You don't want the bank teller to get shot over money. Now, you also don't want the bank robber to leave the bank with the entire contents of the vault. You give them enough money so the bank teller doesn't get shot, the bad guy leaves, and you chase him down afterwards. That's the way to save lives and put the bad guys out of business. Do you want to get them focused back on the money again? And then if they kill more hostages, it's their loss. And that's when they start to think like, all right, well, maybe we made our point. You know, let, let, them, let, them, let them feel that way. Who cares how they feel as long as you get what you want? And that's the idea to try to re-engineer the outcome. Remember, you don't get in life what's fair. You get what you negotiate. If you want to become a better negotiator, click the link in the description below. So are there, are there situations then when it's, it's a lost cause and, um, you know, t two things, you know, how do you know when it's a lost cause and what, what, how should you think about something where it's like, look, there's, there's no way out of this. This is, you know, we, 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 we're just not going to be able to agree. Well, there's really two categories there. There's something that's a lost cause and there's something that's just not worth the time. You know, there's a saying, it's not a sin to not get the deal. It's a sin to take a long time to not get the deal. <laughs> Hostage negotiators had a 93% success rate, which means that 7% of the time, tactical option is the only outcome. We had to recognize, learn to recognize them. We now call these people the seven percenters in a black swan method. 7% of the time, these you are never going to make the deal with these people. Just never. So you want to sense that early and you want to move on because it's going to take you a long time to not get the deal. And the seven percenters are also going to keep you from the people that you could have made deals with. That's the other problem. Now, the other category is what we call half. And I got that phrase from Joe Polish, good friend of mine, runs the Genius Network. He's actually trademarked the phrase half, hard, annoying, lame, and frustrating. Joe's a genius. That hence... Genius Network. And Joe says, you could make the deal with these people, but it's hard, annoying, lame, and frustrating, which means it's going to suck the life out of you. Mm -hmm. And it's going to take a long time. And it's going to be a bad deal. So 
it didn't take you a long time to not get the deal. It took you a long time to get a bad deal. We cut the halves out also. The L and half could be lucrative, as Joe says. It could be hard, annoying, lucrative, and frustrating. But we found since we've implemented this methodology with my team, and we don't train everybody that wants to get trained by us. We do not. If you're going to be a half customer, we have found that dealing with you is going to be painful every step of the way. Dealing with you is going to take longer than it should, which reduces our profit. And the real kicker is because you're half, you're going to think we're half. There's no repeat business here. One of the things that my director of business development, Davey Johnson, has found out, she says the halves don't repeat. And the elves do. Easy, lucrative, and fun. Who really wants to do business with you, who knows you're, you're the solution. Our elves repeat. Our halves don't. Who do you want to spend time with? The guy's going to suck the life out of you and give you no repeat business? Or the person who's not going to suck the life out of you and is going to be a customer for life? It's a pretty obvious choice. <laughs> so you just really want to identify those 7% and just, and I guess it can be difficult, as you say, when they're, they're lucrative. Um, but I, I suppose it's just you, you need to eliminate them essentially and um, not, not waste your time on them. I, and I will tell you a great tell. If they're dangling from the very beginning how lucrative they are, they're a half, at least. <laughs> you know, uh, our, all of our top executives in our company are being coached by an outfit called Strategic Coach Dan Sullivan, brilliant dude out of mm. Canada. Coaches entrepreneurs. This is not coaching for business ex corporate executives. You're not going to know what we're talking about or Dan's talking about. Successful entrepreneurs building big organizations. Dan says, anybody that calls him up on the phone and says, I got all this value for you. I got all this value to give you, to show you. He hangs up right away. That's dangling how lucrative it is up front, the bright, shiny object. Dan has found how to, how to ID the halves or the seven percenters right up front, does not engage in conversations with you. So great mechanism, they're either seven percent or a half on the other side. If they're telling you about this great opportunity, about all this value, they're going to suck the life out of you. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've all been there quite a few times to identify that type of uh, situation. I know I certainly have. Um, a, a good advice, though, just to um, be aware of it and, and uh, not waste your time on those ones. Is it always a zero-sum game in a hostage situation? Because... Getting the person out alive is the only thing that matters, right? So how do you evaluate a situation if you don't get the person out alive? Has that happened? Uh, I haven't had anybody die in a contained siege, although it happens. Um, I have, I've had kidnappings that didn't turn out the way I wanted them to. And we saw that, and you can usually see that stuff coming. And we now know enough about this stuff, you can see it coming. It's the issue of whether or not you can head it off. Mm -hmm. But, the zero, you know, and it's, it's the same way that I negotiate in business now. Like, my money's important to me. So I want to get as much as I can through emotional compensation before I ever start talking money. So hostage negotiator was just like all emotional compensation. You know, let's see how far we can get by hearing them out. 
finding out what's bothering them, finding out what's driving them, reframing a certain things, making them feel more in control. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in, in, in business and in, in any, any other thing, get as far as you can before you start throwing money on the table, right? Right. I, I think another, just on the ground example, um, when, so Michael and I have been friends for about 20 years. We met when I worked at the league, and when we started working together, it was right after he retired, and he had a, another, um, like a marketing agent, and he, the athlete mentality back then was just, you know, get what you can, get what you can. So he, he had about five, I think, endorsements and commercials going on. And I looked at him and I just said, listen, I don't know what's going to come. I said, but you've got to just let these all run out. I said, there's nothing here, in my opinion, that's helping to build your brand right now. And so let's let them go. And he was like, are you crazy? He's like, this is so much money. And did I said, Michael, I don't make money when you're not making money. So if I'm telling you to pass on something where it's going to be a big check for me and I need the money way more than you need it, then just trust me on this. And it took him probably about... I don't know, a couple days to just like sort of let it, you know, settle and situate. And he came back and he said, all right, I get it. And when he goes out and does speaking engagements, it's one of the first stories he'll tell is you've really got to, you know, just understand what you're negotiating for. Even though we didn't know, you know, be these amazing TV opportunities, we still knew he was, you know, destined for some great things to come. So I think less is more in a lot of cases. Um, Obviously not less harm in your case. Um, so. so I think I'm a terrible negotiator. So let's start with that. Right. We will definitely today cover some of the principles of that. But what I really want to talk about is in the book, when you're talking about some of the scenarios that you were in where people, it's a life and death situation right. and you're the line of defense, how do you deal with that emotionally? Like that's my job feels high stress, but that's no one's life is on the line. How do you deal with that? Yeah, well, there's a couple things. I mean, first of all, you just don't know any better. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe when you first started, but not long-term. Uh, you know, training in the FBI, they started out really good. Um, I mean, they hit you, uh, you know, with the Tyson uh, line. Everybody has a plan until they get punched. Like the second day of the negotiation training in the FBI, they hit you square between the eyes with something really hard. Like a real story or yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they spent, they spent the first day laying out a philosophy which if you understand the nuances of the words i still completely agree with a hostage has never been killed on deadline in the united states ever and so like you get kind of comfortable and you got a sense that negotiation is pretty successful overall i mean in reality it's about a 93 percent success rate whoa and then and then the very next day they present a scenario where it looks like a hostage got murdered right on deadline right in front of everybody and you just like, I mean, you were hit in a head. Can I use the words you use in the book? Because this was when I realized I don't want your job or the one that you had back then. You said she was shot twice in the back with a shotgun. Right. It almost cut her in half yeah. as she flew through the glass window. Yeah, in the, And I in thought, the God damn. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. I'd find a way. But Chris, I don't know how I'd come back from that. Like, that would, that be, would damage me in ways that I can't imagine. Well, that, that ends up kind of getting into a secondary characteristic because then when I was running a program, I went out of my way to look for negotiators that had been involved in a siege where somebody got killed and they bounced back. Mm. You know, typically with a success rate that, that's that high, if any time you're under less than double digits of a job, sieges, whatever you want to call them, 
probably everything you touch is going to turn out good, and you're going to get a little overconfident. And once you start climbing past double digits, I mean, odds are starting to run against you. And what happens with pretty much every time is the negotiator will be like, you know, I, I didn't get into this to watch people die. I'm going to find another thing to do. Or they're going to say, I'm never going to let this happen again. And those people will double down and they'll be more courageous in speaking truth to command, whether it be an ambassador or an on-scene commander and basically saying like, no, we can't do it like this. Were you ever involved in an operation where somebody got killed? Yeah. So how did you, how did you, did you need to put yourself back together or do you not react like that? Let's start with that question. Um, I've been uh, repeating one phrase in my head for a long time leading up to that, that I didn't really realize what it meant. My old boss, Gary Nessner, used to always teach us best chance of success. What we're doing is the best chance of success. And so then when uh, the Burnham Sabero case in the Philippines, a lot of people got killed. And finally- Can you give us a quick breakdown uh, what happened? Um, uh, Gracia and Martin Burnham and another American citizen named Guillermo Sabero got scooped up in a dive resort in the Philippines in a region of the Philippines everybody thought was completely safe. Now the bad guys, the Abu Sayyaf, were looking for Westerners. There'd been a siege earlier in the same year in another part of the Philippines where they- looking for Americans and Westerners. They got nothing but Western Europeans. And he ultimately, that, that case was a train wreck, which I was not involved in because there were no Americans there. And the bad guys ended up scoring about $20 million as a result. Oh. Which made a rival gang jealous of the score. So they go out and they do an even more daring raid. They cross like 400 miles of open ocean on these lousy little boats, scooped everybody up in a dive resort, ended up getting three Americans and a bunch of Filipinos. Um, Sabero ends up getting murdered by the, the terrorists about uh, three-ish weeks in, 21-ish days. How does the siege go on for that long? Oh, this thing lasted 13 months. So, Oof. yeah, that was, just, that was just the beginning. That wasn't even op- the opening act. <laughs> so, and they, did they kill them to make a point, to just prove, like, we're serious? Well, you know, they were uh, Western American arrogance, if you will. When Sabero finally got killed, or got killed early on, you know, there had been Filipinos, the bad guys were killing the Filipinos regularly, like it was no big deal. And I can remember at that point in time when we tried to stir up a little outrage over it, I thought, you know, we have sat here and not really said much at all while these Filipinos are getting beheaded. Mm. Now all of a sudden we want everybody to be bent out of shape. And I remember thinking like, if if I was a host country, my reaction would be like, oh, now it's important to you? So, um, but that the group that was doing it at the time, I mean, they were, they did all the bad things that, that terrorist murderers do. I mean, all of them. How do you, so one, was that the first time that you were on a call where somebody got killed? It was the first kidnapping that I was directly involved in where somebody or people were getting killed, yes. All right, so when the first body shows up, what, how, are you the one talking to them? Now we coached. Okay. Uh, one of the reasons why, you know, what I'm doing now is applicable. Uh, the, the Black Swan method is based on hostage negotiation, which is universal. Human nature. Everybody's human. So 
I could show up in any country. I mean, literally any country, any culture, Philippines, Nigeria, Cape Town, Baghdad. All I need to do is find somebody that's coachable. And that person probably knows the market, if you will. And I understand the human wiring. So we put together their, their, their knowledge of the market in very general terms and my knowledge of how to get people to engage. And then we can negotiate anywhere. Okay, so when the first body comes out, what happens to you? It's the first time that this has gone awry. We're in the 7% now yeah. that don't go well. It For me, when I think about the way that that would like impact my mind and force me to like regroup, did it knock you off or are you just laser focused? Well, you got to keep rolling because the case was still ongoing. And so no time for emotions right now. Is that what you're telling yourself? Uh yeah, kind of probably. You know, it's just I mean, you got no choice. The case is still going on. You got you you got a team. You want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go as a team. You can always run screaming from the building. <laughs> but really, and this this is where life gets interesting for me is that by nature, I would say I'm a run screaming from the building person, but I had to flip it all cuz I don't respect that. And Right. in discovering that you don't respect your initial impulse becomes a fascinating journey if yeah, you're willing yeah, yeah. to walk it. Align. So I'm, I'm always curious if if other people are having to do what I have to do to keep myself centered in there, or if it's just like, nah, it didn't occur to me to run screaming from the building. Well, and when, you're, when you're in the midst of, when you're in the battle, I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't bail. I mean, people are looking at you to lead, there are other people's lives that are still on the so line. So that's your you identity. Yourself up. You wouldn't allow yourself to do that. Probably. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good. Did you, because I know you at least have one son. Yeah. Did you teach him that? Steve, what other high points do we need to hear? I mean, Danielle's been very generous so far, and, and I love what she said. I mean, it's really encapsulated what I was hoping we could get across and, and helping people understand. It's about everybody getting better. A positive sum game. I think what, what what's fascinating, and Danielle can speak to this, is the journey itself. In the beginning, like one one of the points in the beginning that you brought up, you know, big big challenge, not going on a listing appointment without a commitment that they're going to list, which is unheard of in real estate, because every seller expects the agent will come out to the house you know, look at the house, give their whole presentation and then let them decide what they want to do. And, and, you know, one of the things you brought up is not going out to the house without a commitment that they're going to list. And so in the beginning, when, you know, that was a, that was a big hill to climb in the beginning. And there were some real rough spots because when, you know, you got to be terrible in order to be good. If you're not willing to be terrible, you're not going to get great at anything. And so she had to be willing to do things that she had never done before. And, you know, that's not an easy conversation. What do you mean you don't want to come out to the house? What, what, are, you, what are you talking about? Everybody else is. How can you not? Right. And, 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 you know, another thing that you brought up, you know, 
when when someone refuses to be a victim that can bring out predator behavior and danielle started running into that and when you don't know where that's coming from in the beginning right you don't have a frame of reference and someone beginning to attack you that doesn't feel any good and and, you know she's checking herself is it me is it my tone is it what i'm saying you know why am i getting that reaction and so in dan young get into more so in the beginning like that was a big mountain to climb and now now it's about how can i get the call down to 10 minutes or less that's what it how can i determine whether i'm the fool or the favorite i don't care which one i am how can i determine within 10 minutes you know it started out with you know 40 minutes then 30 minutes hour and a half <laughs> yeah, yeah. i mean uh, the zoom call you know and 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 now it's like the conversation is how can we just find out now fool or favorite and be done with it and and but you know that this has been over a three four year period of time of trial and error and trial and error and you know one of the things that i think i said to danielle up front that really helped her and I use the analogy with Tiger Woods. When Tiger Woods won his first Masters tournament by 14 strokes, you know, young kid, early 20s, beat the world of best golfers by a million. He went to his golf coach and said, I don't like my swing. I, I you know, I'm, I, I'm winning, but I, I, I'm not in love with my swing. And decided to retool his whole swing. And... And it took him one year, one year. Now, this is Tiger Woods. This is a guy practicing every day. Took him one year to hit the ball once the way he had envisioned he wanted his swing to be. And then it took him another six months to groove in that swing. Well, in that uh, uh, 16-18-month period of time, he didn't win any golf tournaments. And the press was on him and everyone was on him. Tiger Woods, flash in the pan, flash in the pan. What happened to Tiger? After he got that new swing grooved in, he won, ten, I believe, 10 of the next 14 tournaments. And, and I, you know, I shared that with Danielle, that you may take a dip in performance in order to experience a real spurt in growth. And, and that, and you can comment, Daniel, I think that allowed her to relax into this space of it's going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. And no more, um, I had to take, I'd be okay with no more blood money and no more, you know, and a potential dip in performance in order to come out on the other side with something I would be really excited and excited about. It has been an insane journey. I've been hung up on and yelled at um, and everything you can think of. Did we lose you guys? Like- no, I'm still here. I'm I'm sitting there, probably sitting there with my mouth open in admiration. But because you know, here's what here's what what I'm up against um, is when you're. I'm a top agent in my in my geographic area and I have strong digital marketing skills 
And I've really embraced social proof through online reviews from going a long time back, uh, pre-Yelp days. And so I get a lot of calls from the internet and sometimes they're my people and they've become wonderful clients. Um, but a lot of times they have someone in mind and often that person has less experience and often they don't do as good of a marketing job. Um, and for what they don't have the same track record. Um, and so the people are, you know, wanting to double check that. And so they want to do their due diligence. And so the obvious choice to do that with are the, the experts that you can find online that in any, you know, any field, but specifically for real estate agents. And so I get a lot of those calls and at the end of the day, they end up wanting to go with the person who has less experience and less, um, negotiation ability, less marketing prowess because of the relationship, you know, because of some sort of connection or something that they have with them that makes them feel comfortable with them, that they were comfortable from the beginning and they're just double checking. And so now I'm at this point where what I want to do is actually tell people that. And that's where I'm right. playing with now is just saying, you know, here's, here's what we're looking at. Like, here's what often happens and see if I can just get to the truth. Because if that's what you want, I'm happy to answer your questions for a few minutes um, and give you that second opinion you need. But it's kind of like a, a, a doctor or a lawyer, when you go get a second opinion, like you'll get 15 minutes of someone's time potentially for free, but then that's it. You have to hire me to get the full strategy and the full um the full technique and that's where i'm prioritizing my time is for the people who are hiring me so that they can get that expert that i don't know that kind of we were rambling but no that was cool i mean you had so many cool things there um which is exactly what when people get to the level where you're at you know we got a new phrase uh construct that we're thinking about now called shuha and re which okay. is um uh martial arts vernacular when you're in shu you're at the, you're a beginner just do what the master says you know do what steve tells you to do say it the way steve tells you to say it word mm -hmm. for word don't think about it yeah and then you start to get your repetitions in a, a little bit. And, and, you know, there maybe there be a chaotic period of time where you feel very unsure, you feel awkward. Maybe you're getting weird responses. Maybe you're getting hung up on. Maybe you're getting yelled at. But then when you get into high, you're beginning, the, the middle range, you're beginning to develop your own rhythm. You're beginning to see what other, quote, masters say and the elements of what they say and how that fits into your thinking now. And you're seeing things, stuff coming at you. And then in re the expert level, and by the way, all these skills are perishable. I mean, like golf, you don't keep playing. You're going to fall back down off the mountain and okay. re you're making up your own rules and you're trying new things and you're taking, you're probably advancing the, the thinking. And that's exactly where you are now by mm -hmm. saying like, if I know this is going on, and I know how to tell people honestly with integrity without hurting their feelings. Let me see what happens if I just tell them. 
look, I know you're looking for due diligence. I know you got a favorite. You know, you're a human being, so no matter what the fact, logic, and reason says, you're still going to make a bad decision, which is go with your favorite instead of me. But, you know, let me get it, let me get it, give you a taste of what a top agent can really do for you if you ever change your mind, which then the last impression is the lasting impression. You're going to convert them down the line because you're a top agent for good reason. They're going with someone with lesser skills and abilities than you which means that's a one and done deal for them. But you've left a great last impression on them in a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. If they're ever going to come around, that's the highest percentage chance of them coming around. How are you going to get paid if you kill people? How, how are we going to, how are we going to collaborate? You know, how much are you losing by getting rid of hostages when you could have gotten paid for them. Because somebody's going to scare up the money for the hostage. Right. Somebody's going to. A hostage negotiator's real job internationally is to make sure that if somebody scares up that money, that there's enough of a trail left that you can hunt them down afterwards. It's exactly why you give a bank teller bait money. You don't want the bank teller to get shot over money. Now, you also don't want the bank robber to leave the bank with the entire contents of the vault. You give him enough money so the bank teller doesn't get shot, the bad guy leaves, and you chase him down afterwards. That's the way to save lives and put the bad guys out of business. Do you want to get them focused back on the money again? And then if they kill more hostages, it's their loss. And that's when they start to think like, all right, well, maybe we made our point. You know, let, let, them, let, them, let them feel that way. Who cares how they feel as long as you get what you want? And that's the idea to try to re-engineer the outcome. That's really interesting. That, um, is that an easy position to take? Because it definitely makes them feel like we're a game, this is a game, or they're a chip versus like, you almost have to divorce yourself from their humanity and meaning the hostages. Right. I can't even think about them as people right now because that may stop me from actually getting them back. Is that, do you approach it that way? Or are you trying to hold front and center, this is somebody's mom, daughter, whatever, and keep that front of mind? Like how do you, what's the best tactic? Well, yeah. You know, you, you actually, you learn the success tactic, tactic again. And I learned it from Gary. The process is you, you, you lower their value as a bargaining chip, you increase their value as a human being to the bad guys. So that decreases the chances not only the bad guys will kill them, but also you impact how they're treated in the meantime. That's incredibly shrewd. So how do we lower their value as a bargaining chip and then how do we increase their value as a human without the person feeling like they're being manipulated? That's always the fine line. Right, right. Well, it's one of the reasons for potentially for a proof of life question. Not necessarily that you're getting proof of life, but you're making them thinking about it as a human being. Mm. Like, all right, at this point in time, we got no hostage still alive. What's... Uh, 
you know, Martin Burnham's favorite thing to do with his kids first thing in the morning. And by asking that question, you force a thought pattern into the bad guys. Because they were kids at one point in time. You know, um, terrorists, really bad guys, it's not that they're completely lacking in emotion. They're completely lacking in certain emotions, which means they've had some emotional experiences. You want to see which ones are there that they resonate positively with. You know, one of the crazy things uh, that I learned a long time after the fact is terrorists got moms. I mean, you'd be shocked at the emotional vulnerability across the board the power of a well-crafted message from a mom. Really? I mean, and like the first, we found this out, and again, my boss, Gary Nestor, he had a great feel for this. We're in the midst of the first case, um, the um, uh, Jeff Schilling case, which a bad guy, nobody died, hostage walks away because the bad guys get so um, uh, disorganized and disheartened. And two months after the case, the, the, the serial killer terrorist on the other side calls the negotiator that I coached to congratulate him on how effective he was. Not in a rage, but to, to literally say, you know, you're really good at what you do. Wow. They should promote you. So in the midst of that one, bad guys are threatening that they're torturing the American. Not they're going to kill him, but they're torturing him. And the State Department is like, you know, we got to get this torture threat off the table. And I remember thinking, like, you're not really bent out of shape unless you're being made to look bad here. Because having right. an American tortured overseas makes you look bad. And that's what you're concerned about. I'm like, all right, so we'll see what we can do. And I, talk, I talked to my boss, Gary, and I'm like, all right, so how do we go from release him, release him to be nice to him? <laughs> This is absurd. And, uh, you know, Gay says to me, he says, um, tell him that his mom is worried about him. And I can remember literally in that moment, like I held the phone away from my head, and I remember looking at the phone, and I thought to myself, that is the dumbest effing thing I have ever heard in my life. And I kind of rolled my eyes. And, and I used to ignore so much of what Gary told me anyway. You know, he was good. He gave me a lot of rope. And so I go, okay, we'll see if we can work that into the conversation. Because I want to make him feel like I was paying attention to him. <laughs> so we coach up the negotiator the next day. And, you know, we got the negotiation operations center set up. And we got sheets of paper with dialogue. And we're going to be there with him the whole time. We're, you can hear tone of voice. When you get the cadence, you got a pretty good idea what's being said just based on tone. And we tell him, he says, you know, you got to work this mom thing into the conversation. And he looks at us like, you're kidding, right? I'm like, eh, you know, just find a way to work it in. So he's on the phone with a bad guy. <clears throat> and we're, we're all but getting him to come right out that they're not torturing him because they're not. I mean, there's no need to, but it makes them look good to claim they are. And, and Benji says to the bad guy, because, you know, his mom's worried about him. And the sociopathic terrorist on the other end of the phone literally says, his mom knows about this? You tell her he's okay. Whoa. And we're like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. 
And, you know, we're on the other side of the clock in Manila. Uh, you know, we're 12 hours on the other side of the clock. So it's the middle of the afternoon for me. It's, a middle, it's 1.30 in the morning for Gary. Mm. And I'm like, I got to get this out of the way. I mean, I, I, I have to get this out of the way. So I immediately call Gary and I wake him up in the middle of the night. You know, he always took the calls. 1.30 in the morning, phone rings. And I hear him, hello. And I go, you always effing have to be right. And he's like, what do you mean? <laughs> and I go, I don't know how you know that this guy was going to resonate with the mom stuff, but it worked perfectly. How did he know? Did he say? You know, uh, great gut instinct. But once we started looking for it, then it would show up in case after case. And which is really hard. You know, once I was looking for that dynamic, every terrorist got a mom. And if you had to bet, it's a good bet that they're bonded to their mom. Like f physically, they were born. They had to have a mom. Mom was probably nurturing. All the different stuff to bend them out of shape and turn them into the twisted human being that they became probably didn't have any, anything to do with mom. So they still got deep inside, you know, first year of their life, they were nurtured by mom. Mom did everything she could, she possibly could. Even terrorists got moms. And I saw this show up a couple times later on, and I started realizing it was probably, if I, you took me to Vegas, which I live there now, and you said, place a bet. Is this guy going to resonate emotionally with the mom? And I'd say, based on our data, we got an 85 to 90% chance that the mom is a button we can punch. And so then in subsequent cases, knowing this, I'd bring it up with ambassadors or, or you know, FBI headquarters or the White House. And they'd all react the exact same way that I did. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. That ain't, you know, they're inhuman. Uh, that ain't ever going to work. And we saw, I saw evidence of it in 2012 when um, Son of Al-Qaeda, uh, the group in, in uh, Iraq that was chopping people's heads in 2012, 2014, 2014 timeframe. Um, their name will come to me after the fact. But there was, uh, there was one case there where the mom card got played really strongly and the, the head, of, head of the group responded and I remember thinking like I've been telling you know I know this sounds crazy but we see it over and over and over again so there's a common humanity thread to every human being regardless of circumstances that's really interesting so we've got the mom thread we've got what are some of the other threads a desire to be heard, heard. Uh, want to be in control like what are what are some known knowns when you roll up on average, the sort of 80, 85% range, when you roll up, you know, okay, mom, probably going to be a button. They want to be in control. They want to be heard. Um, are there any others? Sense of loss. And, you know, a, an idea of some sort of a loss. Loss is the strongest be, tri uh, behavior trigger of human nature, period. Period. How do you track that down? Um, well, first of all, it, it's, it's like you know what you're looking for to begin with. And it's not really active listening, it's proactive listening. And there are certain things, or the tactical application of empathy. What do we know to be true? What do we got to bet on? Loss is the primary, the biggest impact on decision-making of human beings across the board. Danny Kahneman, 2002, Nobel 
prize winner behavioral economics lost things twice as much as an equivalent gain for people, period. If you're human, you're wired that way, which makes it the biggest trigger in thinking. So if they're engaged in a behavior that we don't understand, they perceive the loss, and we got to start you know, sniffing around for it, looking for the hints, knowing it's there. And then consequently, you're going to get them to change their mind about something, you reformulate the loss. If I say to you, if you do this, there's a 90% chance you fail. You're like, I'm not doing that. But if I say, do this, you know, you got a 10% chance of success. Ooh, it sounds and lands completely different. 10%, I could su- succeed. 10%, I'm a winner. I'm in the 10%. You know, it, it lands differently. But if you want to make sure they don't do it, 90% chance you'll fail here. I'm not doing that. I'm not taking that risk. That's too far against me. I mean, that will shut somebody down for sure. 10% success might move them forward, but I guarantee you I shut you down with a 90% failure rate. There is no difference in those numbers. Exact same numbers. And so you start to see it across the board and like, all right, so we're going to get them to change their mind. We just change the frame of the loss. You're in a merger and an acquisition negotiation entrepreneur, sole proprietor is trying to sell this company, wants to get, you know, whatever, um, 10X EBITDA because a buddy of his got 10X. Now, the person buying his company wants to take him, wants him to take a lower multiple so that in two years he retains a piece and he makes 30, 40, 50, $100 million more by taking less now. Guy's thinking his loss, I, you know, I, I, can't, I can't take a million dollars less for this. I can't take nine when I should take 10. I'll lose a million dollars. Take nine, take a piece. You're willing to risk $100 million seven years from now? You want to lose $100 million over a million dollars now? And they'll be like, no, that's crazy. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. You just reframed what the loss is. And that's where you get people to change their mind because whether it's a terrorist thinking we have lost, you know, we've been harmed in the past. We've lost our homeland. You know, we've lost our identity. Terrorism is about choosing violence as a way to make up for loss. Interesting. I have never heard that before. Uh, is that universal? Um, it's the universal driver of human decision-making. Now, how they're looking at the loss, you know, you know, there's kind of three groups that are out there that you see over and over again. You know, lethal triad, they called it the uh, charismatic leader, the sociopathic um, middlemen, you know, the number twos, captains, lieutenants, and then the inadequate followers. It was a terrorism book from way back when called Crusaders, Criminals, and Crazies. Uh, a friend of mine, Tom Strentz, wrote a book called The Bad, The Mad, and The Sad. So it kind of breaks down into, you know, the, the complete charismatic leader, maybe he believes in a cause, maybe he just believes in himself. The criminals are involved. They're just doing it because it's a way to combat the status quo and continue to co- commit crime. The people that are looking for identity, you know, it's harsh to describe them as the inadequate followers, but the sad, 
you know, they're looking for an identity. And the leadership has convinced them that they've been harmed by this perceived loss and they have to make up for it. So it's kind of packaged along those lines. And is that who's going to be there actually doing the hostage part? So you're not dealing with the charismatic leader, you're dealing with the sad underlings? Principally, the sad underlings are their implementers because they're the cannon fodder for the leader. You know, the, the leadership, whether it's a charismatic leader or a sociopathic enabler, who are they going to put at risk? Who are you going to send out to conduct the kidnapping? Who's going who's gonna to hold the hostage? Who's going to be the hostage's jailer? That's the worst job on their side, you know, to have to sit around with a hostage day after day. It's, a, it's, a, it's you know, you're not, you're not giving that to your talented people. How did these guys, 13 months? Yeah. How did they not just get bored and want it to end? Um, they're prepared for a little longer siege. They've got a vision of a big payoff in the end. That $20 million payout the year previous painted visions of wealth, mm. which means if they don't get their $20 million, they're losing. So you'll stay in the game longer because of this perceived loss. You and know, the are vision you guys letting food get in or have they stocked up enough food to get through all this? Well, we're trying to, we're trying to get stuff in. Um, uh, you know, didn't know this was going on at the time, but um, Dan Bowden, the author of Black Hawk Down, wrote an article in Vanity Fair probably about a year after this case went down revealing a whole bunch of information that I was not privy to in the case. So according to Dan Bowden, who evidently has great resources in the U.S. government, not in the FBI, there were unnamed government agencies that were setting in, sending in food deliveries with informants that had tracking devices in them. Oh. That again, according to Dan Bowden in his article in Vanity Fair, you know, I am quoting a publicly source. I am not quoting, pri you know, secret government information that uh, there were food deliveries that were being made with trackers on them. Give me an example. You said before, you brought up a great point, which is something that pisses me off with so many people that teach sales or negotiation that don't recognize what you said is that it's one thing to say it's the first four seconds. It's another thing to know how to do it, right? Like, like, like so many people say, oh yeah, you gotta be, you gotta get it for how? I'm like, right? So I'm a big believer in my book. I, I show you exactly from my perspective in sales, how you go about doing that. And I get really granular, right? And I know yes. that you probably appreciate that because you do the same. So what are your strategies as a negotiator for like, how do you uncover? And this, in this instance, you put up a great point because I say there's these intangibles almost, these things of value. They have massive value to the other side, but maybe not so much value to you. That's a huge opportunity in negotiation, right? How do you drag those things out of someone else without well, breaking know, one the of our, One of our favorite ones that, that we really use a lot is I get you correcting me. I'll say stuff wrong on purpose. Now, most people won't do that because – uh, they think I got to know everything. I can't be corrected. I can't be wrong. Being wrong is embarrassing. Most people would rather die than be embarrassed. Give me an example. That's a that's a great idea. Give me an example of that. Like, uh, like uh, what you would do? Like, say something uh, wrong on purpose. Give me an example. I'll say, you know, it, it seems like Jim on your side of the table is really against this. You're 
if Jim is in favor of it, you're going to go like, no, 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 no. Jim's good. Jim's good. It's Bob who's against it. <laughs> now you just gave me information I'd have never gotten out of you otherwise that you shouldn't have told me ever. You just threw Bob uh, effectively, but I'm not going to hurt Bob. Now, now I got a great diagnosis of where the problems are. And That's you're never going to regret telling me that because your correction, for me, a correction is embarrassment. For you, it feels great. Would it be also like when you do it with like price? It sounds like maybe you guys, this is a bit above your budget. Like that's kind of what's bothering you. Say, no, no. Would you use it for that or more for like, you know, how far would you go with that sort of strategy? As your gut instinct, I know, tells you price isn't the issue. The issue is value. So somebody pushes and, and if, if that's the case, then changing a the price is not going to make it a better deal. Mm -hmm. So I need to know what's going to make it a better deal. So I'll, I'll say, if you got a problem with price, I'm going to say, boy, it sounds like the value is just not there for you. Again, there's a correcting motion uh, reaction on your your part, and you probably say, like, yeah, well, you know, now you bring it up, uh, X, Y, Z. Here's where the problems are. Now I got an opportunity to fix this, and there's a real chance that the way you want it fixed is actually going to increase my profit. There's enough of a chance that I want to find out how you want it fixed first. Right. Would you say that the biggest mistake that people make in negotiations, they don't take the time to find out the things that are really important to the other side. They almost use their own map of the world and assume they can play mind reading games. Like they're the great Kreskin. They know what the other person wants. They know the things that matter to them. And they end up focusing and negotiating opposed to the wrong elements of the negotiation. Would you say that's very common? Uh, I agree a hundred percent. That may be one of the biggest problems. You know, anybody that's whatever, whatever they're in, if they've been doing it for one, six months, they want to show how smart they are, which means they're not getting information from the other side. Right. So do you typically, um, wait, um, when you teach negotiation, do you have a formal, like, sort of like you know, the, the ABCs of this stuff that you, I mean, how many steps have you brought? Have you broken it down to steps, like dis discerning steps like that? We teach more skill-based stuff and adaptability of skills. Got it. Um, yeah, there, is, there is a basic progression, but the more you get focused on steps per se, which I know that you've run into this, people get real focused on the steps and they stop paying attention to the other side and accuse the other side's giving them. My issue is when I first invented the system I teach, it was the people who weren't really Straight that intelligent. <laughs> I was teaching it to kids that really barely clawed their way out of high school. It had to be really simple, you know? So it was like step one, step two. But you're right in, this, in the sense that one of the things that I always make sure that I also reinforce is the fluidity. That, In other words, that just, you know, yes, like in a perfect world, you know, this happens, then that 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 happens, right? But in reality, in the real world, what often happens is you are moving around these steps in sort of, you know, have these boundaries above and below that represent the wiggle room that in the natural flow of an encounter, you can't, it's not just going to be A, B, C, D. Yeah, once in a while, you get a perfect sale like that or a perfect negotiation where they just are just right on board, but there's that wiggle room. So you, so what you do is you really focus on the actual skills and strategies that would really apply to any aspect of the negotiation, right? That's, is that part of what you, like you're the cornerstone of what you're teaching? These are general skills that are always important in negotiating. Yeah. Get, get the basics of the skills down 
And as you repeat them over and over again, it's like ad-libbing music. Okay. Suddenly, you can ad-lib in a moment. And it's why Michael Wheeler, who's a friend, colleague, teaches at Harvard Business School, he actually has a jazz musician come into his negotiation classes to give people uh, the idea of improv and ad-libbing in the moment. You know how I explain it? It's, great, it's, it's a, a great analogy. I explain it by saying, imagine it's like a box, a train of boxcars. And the way they all connect together is you, you, as long as you know what the front and the back, if you have the front and the back down pat, if those are lockstep, you can latch on the front to any back and the back to any front. So that's right. When I teach people, it's like, you, you don't have to know everything that happens. Like you, you can't be rote, as you said, in the middle. But if I, as long as I know the entry point and exit point from each step, so what happens if you, if you know the, see, in my stuff, it's a lot of language patterns, right? And, and you need to make sure what I find with, with salespeople that aren't natural salespeople is that they don't have it memorized, like a, a one sentence or two. Their conscious mind is so caught up in the words that they can't use their unconscious mind. Like they, they get this, they get locked up. So what I do is I get them to memorize just the last line of a certain pattern. So when they start to end one, chunk of a, of a, of a sale, their, order, their unconscious mind takes over and they can start thinking about, okay, now where am I going next? Where am I going next? Where am I going? So as they're talking, they're actually, as a pro, like you and I were naturals, right? We're talking and you're already, you're talking and at the end, you already, you know where you're going next. Your, your mind's working in two directions at once here, right? So what we do is we try to teach people how to like almost know each piece, but make sure you know the beginning and the end really well. And then you can start like you said, improvising and creating beautiful music by moving the cars around one this way, that way, right? You see, it's very, kind of a very similar idea. Yeah, and, and that sort of instruction, you're trying to give people enough comfort level so that they're not afraid. Now they can think in the moment instead of being overcome by fear. Exactly. Give me an example of a, of a business. Um, you don't have to get with the name, but just like an industry that you've like, where you entered in, in negotiation, you could, you know, make a generous subject, like a, a great example. If you can say a product, that's great too, where you really helped them, you know, how powerful it was, like how you went in there in a tough negotiation and really made a huge difference. You kind of lay that out. You could leave names out if you have to. Wow. You know, I mean, I'm sure there's so many, but I want to get a, hear a good one, a good story. No, we, you know, w one of my guys, uh, coached a negotiation, one was trying to settle with an insurance company and they actually had two weeks left when the insurance company didn't have to pay them at all because they drug their feet so long on, on the, on the payment. And not only was it two weeks left, but it was mid December, which means all they had to do was run out the clock. And how often can you get anybody to do anything in December? Cause it's the holidays. And nobody's working anyway. So we, we coached uh, on the approach and they settled, they had previously offered $2,000 and they settled on December 23rd for $25,000. When if they'd have waited another week, they wouldn't have had to pay him a dime. But it was a, it was a legitimate insurance claim. And the insurance rep on the other side was a human being and human beings want to do the right things given, given the opportunity. And how did you, what, what was the strategy that you used to, to expedite the, the, uh, the settlement? Yeah, well, uh, the strategy that gets in anybody's decision-making way are negative emotions. You know, your emotional wiring, your uh, survival mode is 75% negative. 
So if I shut down the negatives by simply articulating them, that's going to be the fastest way to shut them down. So we had this person say, you know, I'm probably looking like a money grubber who's been lazy, who's delayed, who's been unresponsive, who doesn't care about the insurance company and probably doesn't even need the money. Suddenly they're in a conversation because what's the insurance person on the other side? Ah, these people are money grubbers. They don't need the money. They're lazy. They've been unresponsive. They don't care about me. So you deactivate their negative perceptions of you by simply stating them fearlessly. And people suddenly wow. go like, wow, now you're in a conversation. You know what's amazing is that one of the core strategies of the straight line is literally directly that. So what we have, we call it, I call it, um, you know, lowering someone's action threshold where I say that, and I always say that we're fear-based creatures. I just, it's funny that we say the same things in different ways, you know, like, you know, it's wired into our reptilian brain. The fear is first, like the, it's the fear of loss, the downside. People always look at the downside first. And one of the biggest mistakes that salespeople make, and I know this from my own dad, it was, he was the toughest person to sell to in the world. And the reason was, is that when he was faced with a buying decision, you know, we always run two movies. Well, if I say yes, what's my best outcome? Or if I say yes, what's my worst? What's the downside? And most people will go heavily to the, like, you know, so the point is, if I say to my dad, well, what's the worst that can happen? If I don't tell him, he will say he'll be dead, destroyed, living in the street, embarrassed, vilified by his friends, embarrassed in front of his, like he'll create this crazy narrative in his own mind and go heavily to the negative as someone who doesn't like to buy stuff versus actually you saying, verbalizing something, here's what's the worst could happen. You lose a few dollars, right? You know, you'll cash in your money back guarantee and you know, you can fire me as your broker and we'll part as friends. Not going to be the end of the world, right? So it's like, same thing. You're disarming their negative narrative by actually stating it, saying, bring it out, here's the bring it out. Here's the word. And, and once you've done, they're like, yeah, well, that's true. They say, but on the upside, then you start actually running the upside benefits, which these people never really do. Like someone like my father who hates to buy stuff, he runs a very long negative downside movie, very short positive upside one. So what you do is you almost hijack their strategy by saying, well, listen, here's the downside. Let me just tell you, and, and you, know, you say, right? They say, well, yeah, I guess so. Like they never do that. I say, but on the upside, then you run the long upside movie. They typically never do. And it has a dramatic impact on getting people to buy, or I guess in your case, to settle. So it's really interesting to me that how similar the, the processes are where you, you can find these little parallels all the way through. Yeah, exactly. And a sequence that you outlined is critical. You got to take care of the negative first. Totally. Then a thousand you percent of unleash, yep. You can unleash the positive. Positive gets ridiculously powerful if exactly. you get the negative out of the way. Yeah, it's it's amazing. So it's so funny as you said. Like I did this in an unschooled, intuitive way, yeah. and you know, and then many years as you you've done and and you've and you've studied, there is like all these sort of different supporting bodies of knowledge of how people really you know think and how the brain actually works and makes decisions. Have you ever studied NLP at all, neuro linguistic programming? Yeah, I never have. I've gotten so much feedback that there are a lot of parallels and overlap. That's why I, I need bring to it study up. it. I just never had. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There are, and I think you would probably, well, I, I doubt you learn anything new, really. What you would say is, ah, yeah, yep, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah, that's a bit, you know, NLP is, is, um, is, can be really powerful. The problem with NLP is mostly that it's, it's used, 
it's it's misused by people who don't really know how to use it. Like it's too easy to become certified in NLP and oh yeah, I'm certified. It's like you get in a crackerjack box. That's the problem. But for those that really do know how to use it, it's it's powerful stuff because it is all the same. You know, some of these you know you know very you know powerful strategies, and then it gets down. You know, how well can you really apply them? Um, would you say in all your career? Has there ever been a situation where you say, there's really a no, it's a no win to go, there is no way to win this thing. It's just, it's a lose lose. And I, you know, does it ever get to that point where you feel like there's really nowhere to go? Like, you know, either in. in Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, first of all, basic hostage negotiation stats, 93% close rate. All right. Which means 7% of the time it ain't going to work out. (laughs) You know, that it's there. Best chance of success is not a guarantee of success. Sure. And our, you know, one of our challenges, Gary Nestor, my former boss, at the hostage negotiation, crisis negotiation unit, he developed a set of criteria called high risk indicators. How do we spot right off? How do we spot this right off the bat? Is there, is there a profile to use a dirty word? We're doing the same thing now in business. There's some deals that you are never going to get. Right. Let's just recognize them sooner. It's not a sin to not get the deal. It's a sin to take a long time to not get the deal. Absolutely, yeah. Let's let's make it shorter. Chris, you said at the beginning, the devil is in the detail. And I really want people listening to this podcast to get detail from us about how they, from the minute they turn off this podcast and go and buy your book, Never Split the Difference, how from that moment they can be better negotiators. What is the best way to do that? Should we role play? Do you want to explain to us the skills that are involved in negotiating? How do you normally work this kind of thing? Well, let the other side go first. And that's really hard to do because everybody wants to have their say. One of the things about negotiation is negotiation is the art of letting the other side have your way. How do you do that? You got to let them talk. So um, Let's say you have a promotional event of mine. You want to do a promotional event with me. You, you, got, you got a whole game plan laid out. And um, you're a typical negotiator. You're worried about your budget. You're worried about the details. You want to be in control. Um, how would you start that? How would you normally start that? If you wanted to contact me about it, make the deal. I would call you and I'd say, hey, Chris, uh, my name's Jake. I'm based in the UK. I hear you've got a new book out, Never Split the Difference. I, I run a events agency in the UK and I would love the opportunity to share your story with people um, across the pond. How do you fancy that? Sounds like you had something specific in mind. Yeah, uh, yeah, I absolutely do. Yeah, I want to do a book tour around the UK. Um, and I reckon we can sell out theatres. Um, and I've got some great contacts in the TV industry. So I reckon I can get you on to um, BBC Breakfast and Good Morning Britain. They're the two big early morning programmes over here. Um, what do you think? All right, so I'm going to stop right there. And I'm going to talk about what just happened. Yeah. Before you contacted me, whether you actually wrote it down or you're aware of it, you have an entire vision in your head. V- vision drives decision. Now, there, there are a lot of times in negotiations where people are actually just contacting someone to get a competing bid, or they're looking to do due diligence. Like, let's say you want to do this whole book tour thing, but you want to do it with an equivalent author. There's somebody else with a business book out there. And you're dry running with me to see what I might be looking for. Which means 
the vision in your head does not include me. So my first saying sounds like you've got something in mind. It doesn't, I didn't say, what do you have in mind? Because there's a, any question puts people on guard to some degree. Now, what do you have in mind is a good, what we would refer to as a calibrated question. A lot of other people would call either an open-ended question or a reporter's question. Who, what, when, where, why, and how? Reporter's interrogative. I ask that question if I want you to stop and think. It triggers what Danny Kahneman would refer to as in-depth, slow thinking. If in that moment I want you to stop and think and take a step back, I'll ask you what question. If instead I want to trigger a straight stream of consciousness, seems like sounds like you had something in mind, hits your brain in a completely different way. And it's much more likely to open up a direct downstream, unvarnished stream of consciousness of your thoughts. Now, there's no guarantee of success of any approach. I just want to use the stuff that's most likely to get the thinking out of you without exhausting you. I want you to give me a downstream that you're comfortable with, which simultaneously makes it me feel to you like I'm easy to work with. Yeah, yeah. Well, you were kind of praising me when you said to me, seems like you've got uh, something. In, I, I almost felt I had to tell you something because I almost felt like you'd or, you were already impressed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's all this additional emotional intelligence, relationship building benefits that kind of come with this approach entirely. So can I flip it slightly? Because I'm intrigued by this approach. I want to go back to the angle Jake was talking about, but in relation to your days as a FBI negotiator, what would you do if somebody refused to play ball with you? So if somebody just refused to engage? Well, you know, that's part of the assessment of the process. Now, we'd probably start what we consider to be one-way dialogue because you refusing to answer back doesn't mean you're not listening. So if you're refusing to answer me back, what does that mean? What that means is you're scared. Your guard is up. You don't know if you could trust me. The future looks extremely uncertain to you. You're frozen. So that informs me as to now I'm going to start taking educated guesses. You know, each one of these things sounds like is a label. Looks like, feels like. Those are, those are educated guesses. You know, we, we have a scientific term for them. We call them swags. That's a scientific wild-ass guess. I'm going to take a scientific <laughs> wild-ass guess on what you're feeling. So I'm negotiating. We got a 27th floor of a high-rise in, a, in, a, in Harlem, in New York, in, a, in the 90s. We have brought the circus to town. We got the SWAT team. We got up 27 floors in this high-rise. I mean, the circus has come to town. We've made so much noise getting up there. We figure there's no way that these guys are not long gone because we brought the circus. We got elephants. We got trapeze artists. I mean, we make that much noise bringing an entire SWAT team and everybody to bear on this apartment. 
So I think we're talking to an empty apartment. I get two baby negotiators with me. They're still in training. I'm like, cool. This is right of passage. Everybody talks to an empty apartment at some point in time. In point of fact, the fugitives are inside and they're heavily armed. And so I just say, look, I want you to know that I know you're scared. And I know you're worried about coming out. And I know you're worried about getting hurt when you're coming out. Here's what it's going to look like when you come out so that you don't get hurt. Because I said vision drives decision, right? I got to start putting a vision in their head of them coming out safely. So we're, we're talking to this empty apartment. I'm thoroughly convinced it's empty for six hours. Six hours of this over and over and over. And six hours in, a sniper on an adjacent building says, I just saw a curtain move inside. And we all go like, holy cow, they really are in there. And so then I go, look, you know, we just saw the curtains move on the inside. One of you just looked out the window. I've been telling you for six hours, we're not going away. And that you're going to come out safe. And about five minutes later, without saying a word, the door opens and a pair of hands comes out exactly as I've described. I said, you have to come out with your hands first so that we can see that they're empty so we don't hurt you. And you've got to move really slow because we've got to keep you safe. We brought all three, out, all three of them out one at a time exactly like that. They never said a word. When, when we got outside, the first one to come out was a female. And I went to talk to her. I'm like, I've been talking for six hours. Why don't you say something? And she says, well, we were hoping you would go away. And I said, well, if you were hoping we, were go we would go away, why'd you come out? She said, well, you said you'd never go away. So we finally believed you and decided to come out. What? Unbelievable. Have you ever gone up against, not like gone up against, but worked with another master negotiator? In Everybody on deals. my team. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but maybe a complete stranger that you're like, oh, this person, oh, they know what they're doing. Like they're... They're another level of they're using your strategies or they have their own that are really effective. And is it harder to negotiate with someone who is actually really powerful communicator, confident, using great negotiation strategies, not manipulative? Or is it easier because you kind of both speak the same language? It's uh, Well, it, it really depends on whether or not they're trying to be collaborative. Yeah. And so it's easier uh, a, a black swan trained negotiator is trying to be collaborative. That's a great negotiation. I mean, and, and we're, we're engaged in it all the time. Right. Like our, our clients, we're making them better negotiators. Like we're always trying to scare out a better deal. Mm. We're always trying to figure out what's better for them, what's better for us. Sure. Um, and so uh, welcome it. It's really what the other person's trying to do. And there, we've run across some old style people, you know, you're here in Los Angeles. Entertainment industry oh, yeah. is famous for being purely exploitive. Yes. So you could have a great resume in the entertainment industry and be a really offensive human being. Mm -hmm. Now, because of your resume, your employer might think they're hiring a great person. Mm -hmm. When in fact, you're running around offending people regularly right. and, and had a negotiation like this where it started going off the rails early. And I looked this person up, and they had an extensive entertainment industry background. And I thought, all right, here's the problem. Right. 
<laughs> their resume looks great, mm -hmm. but it's from an industry where if you cannot get every, get all the chips, then you don't want to do that deal. Mm -hmm. And, and then I, uh, which I also think the top level of the entertainment industry, you know, these guys and gals get together at a social function and they say, look, stop messing around. What do you need? How do we make this deal right, so right, better? Right, right, right. But they're very quiet about that. Yes. Because they don't want to be seen as pushovers. Right. Because, well, it takes a month or two to negotiate, then they're back doing like, what do we need to do? Let's figure this out. Yeah. 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 So, we, you know, we see, when I see those types adopting our skills, if somebody's using Black Swan against me, but I'll figure that out really fast. Really? <laughs> and I'm... No, it's not a sin to not get the deal. It's a sin to take a long time to not get the deal. Because mm, you're wasting time. You're wasting time. It's also a sin to take a long time to get a bad deal. Yeah. So if I know the deal is going to be a bad deal, then we quit and we move on. What do you do when something you feel like is dragging off? You're going back and forth, back and forth, and it's been weeks, a month. We don't go back and forth. Really? No. Look, there's a good reason it's going back and forth. We're going to figure that out, and we're going to make a decision. We're going to move on. Mm. And we started, you know, our, our internal terminology, which I borrowed from a guy, Joe Polish, Genius yeah. Network. He calls them halves and elves. Easy, lucrative, fun, hard, annoying, lame, and frustrating. What some people would call a PETA, pain in the neck. PETA does not obviously finish with an N. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but everybody's got their term for that person. So I, t I tell my team who negotiates on my behalf all the time, look, let's walk away from the half sooner rather than later. Let's develop a profile of what a half says mm. so we can figure them out earlier. Now, in the meantime, let's pull our own data. How long does it take to make a deal with a good customer? How long does it take to make a deal with an annoying customer? And we found out two things. Number one... It can take five times as long to make the deal with an annoying customer. Wow. So now we're working at 20% of our pay. Mm -hmm. We just took an 80% pay cut. Interesting. And the annoying customers are not repeats. Right. They're, they're takers. Yeah. And if, if they're annoying for us, we're probably annoying for them. Mm -hmm. So here's the, here's the pro proposition. Do you want repeat customers that pay you full value or do you want one-offs that want an 80% discount and you're never going to see them again? Right. So as soon as you drop the one-offs, then the repeaters accelerate. So it's, it, how do you put yourself in a, in a position where your business accelerates? Right. You let go of those types of people. So you it's let go of the friction. It's learning to profile and learning to understand what are the cues yep. of those types of individuals. Yeah. Yeah. We did the same thing in hostage negotiation. Mm -hmm. They realized that there were some bad guys that were not going to come out. Suicide by cop. And once we recognized suicide by cop, which is, you know, the, the harsh nature of the reality is, if a guy went there to die and he has hostages, what we had to accept was that he's going to kill hostages until we kill him. Mm. And it was always a him. Wow. And so then, if this is going to be the case... Are there telltale signs at the beginning? And my old boss, Gary Nessner, came up with a block of instruction called high-risk indicators. What are the indicators of high risk? 
what are you going to see in the first hour? And so I went back to my team and I, well, we're going to do high risk indicators for bad customers. Mm, that's good. What are they going to say in the first hour? Interesting. And then let's, and then let's, before we know for sure, let's make a list of the things that they say that we suspect. And then let's just track how long it took to make the deal and whether or not they made another deal. And you will be shocked. It doesn't matter who you are. Wow. The behavior is going to be repeated in your world over and over and over. Mm-hmm. And you are going to be able to spot them in the first 20 minutes. <laughs> if I look back at all the relationships, intimate relationships that didn't work, I could go back and spot the first you know, interaction, the second one, and, and realize, well, that was all because of me. I didn't spot it cor- correctly. And I kept repeating the wrong relationships. So, um, but that's good. It's having those indicators, tracking it, and and then adjusting moving forward when you have a new potential customer, potential girlfriend, whatever it might be. <laughs> having that indicator, I give you one of the big ones in business of somebody yeah. who's going to be a problem. Yes, I've got a great opportunity for you. That's a bad indicator. It's a bad indicator. Mm. And what that means is. This is a great opportunity for me if you do all the work. Yeah. Now, a lot of people are seduced by the, the enormity of the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of money there. I got a bunch of billionaires in a room. This is a great opportunity for you. No, it's not. No, you're doing all the work. <clears throat> yeah. You want to put me in front of those billionaires because they're going to make you look good. And so then my question will be back to you like, all right, so... As it's played out in the past. Who that looks like me did you put in this position and how did it work out for them? Mm-hmm. Because now that's implementation. Like, all right, so you got me worried by offering me this great opportunity. I suspect it means if I do all the work, something will come of this. Yeah. So maybe... What's that work look like? Right. Have you done this in the past? Mm-hmm. How did it work out? Sure. I'm asking how questions. Because mm-hmm. I'm suspicious, but I got to worry about how's this going to go. Yeah. So that, that's been a real consistent thing across the board. It's a big indicator. Yeah. It's powerful stuff, Chris. Listen, uh, I got a great opportunity for you. <laughs> you know what? If you would just go to Dubai <laughs> and move your whole operation to uh-huh. Dubai yeah. and set up there... Like, I think Dubai is a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be sitting there like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Do you have any idea the time zone I know. and how many people I have? Yeah. But I actually, when we were talking earlier, I asked you about setting up shop in other countries. Mm-hmm. And your immediate reaction was how hard that was going to be. Yes. Because in throwing it out there, I want to get a feel for... Is this a layup for you? Is this a slam dunk? Mm-hmm. Am I? Do I think it's a slam dunk and you think it's a three-point shot? Right. Or it's a half-court shot? Yeah. Now I'm teasing this out. Like I, mm-hmm. There are things like that that could be good opportunities for some people. But is your team set up and ready to move for it? Right, right. That's really where that all that comes in. So if somebody has a great opportunity, I got to know what the journey looks like. My team is set up or mm-hmm. it's not. Right. 
but I can't jump at that opportunity. And there are a number of places out there that are glittering jewels in a distance, mm -hmm. like Dubai, which I'm thinking seriously about mm. setting up shop there. Really? But it doesn't work for everybody. Right. Right. So I got I some somebody saying to me Dubai is an opportunity that ain't good enough. Right. I've been there twice. It's it's actually pretty fascinating what they built. I mean, it's pretty impressive. But again, you're on the other side of the world, you know. And if you do a lot of business in the U.S. and it's just a different, you got to see if that that could be a bigger benefit over there. What's the journey to the opportunity, yeah. and what are the obstacles in route? Absolutely. And very few people think about that because. A great idea looks like a great opportunity, and they don't have an appreciation for the landscape on the way. Mm -hmm.
Did you ever wonder what are the emotional intelligence secrets that FBI hostage negotiators use to get their way? And whether or not they would do you any good in your business or personal negotiations? So after all, if there's a bank robbery with hostages, which I have negotiated, and there's four hostages, does the hostage negotiator say, well, I'll tell you what, why don't we meet in the middle and we'll call it a day? You, <laughs> you really can't compromise when you're a hostage negotiator, and that's, that's the way that I learn negotiation. So I'll, I'll take you through a little bit of how I got to learn it and how I began to apply it in my business and professional life. And it really started on a night in late winter in New York City, well after dark. I left the, the FBI office, 26 Federal Plaza, and fought my way through traffic to get to a suicide hotline. I was volunteering on the suicide hotline because I'd been told that that was the best way to become a hostage negotiator, the best experience. And as a side note, I will tell you, it's, a, it's the best way to learn how to really listen to people on an emotional intelligence perspective. So I got to the hotline that night, and I picked up the phone, and I answered the phone, and my uh, hotline voice, hello, this is Helpline, which was the, came to be known as the late night FM DJ voice. <laughs> which now I refer to as the late night FBI DJ voice. But the voice on the other end of the phone just blurted out. He says, I, I, need, I need your help, I need your help. I gotta put a lid on this day. I gotta bring a lid to this day. And I listened to him and I, and I sensed that he was frantic. So that's exactly what I said. I said, you sound frantic. And immediately I could, I could feel a change in his tone of voice. And his voice came down. I felt strength come into his voice. And he started to talk to me, and he began to tell me uh, his issue was that he was battling the disease of paranoia, and he was going to go on a car trip the next day with his family. And in, he knew that on that car trip, because of his paranoia, he would get completely wound up and, and overcome with the paranoia. So since it was going to happen the next day, that night he was overcome with paranoia, thinking about the paranoia for the next day. And it completely wrapped himself up and needed to put a lid on the day. So as we began to talk, uh, he began to tell me also about how much his family was helping him. And I used something that I'd, someone else had once said to me, and I remember how strong it was, because I was explaining to a colleague of mine how involved my family was and how supportive they were. And at that time, my colleague said to me, it sounds like your family's really close. And when he said that to me, I remember how good it felt and how it just drew together everything that I was feeling and how I felt myself strengthened when he said that. So I said to this, the same thing to this man on the phone. I said, it sounds like your family's really close. And he says, yeah, we are. And so then he began and he continued to talk and he talked and he began to tell me all the things that he was doing in order to battle the paranoia. And I was, I was very impressed with it. He sounded like a very determined man to me. So I said to him, you sound really determined. And he said, he said, you know, I am determined. He said, you know, I'm going to go on that car trip tomorrow, and I'm going to be fine. Thanks for everything you did for me. And he hung up. <laughs> now, I said three things to him. 
just three simple things. And I didn't know it at the time. And I was as explaining to a friend of mine at brunch just the other day. He was telling me he used to write for Hollywood. And he said, you know, what you're saying about what you do makes all the sense in the world. I never would have guessed what you were doing, but once you explain it, it makes all the sense in the world. It's like a great Hollywood ending. You have no idea what's coming at the end of a, of a movie, but when it happens, it makes sense. And that's what hostage negotiators do. And we do now do in business. We take things that you all know about, but we combine them in ways that make them incredibly powerful that no one ever sees.